0: It is with mixed feelings that we come to Isaiah 66. These are the last words of Isaiah the prophet. As you're turning to Isaiah 66, would you listen once again to the teaching of Jesus Christ on prayer? He said in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, here we are in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives really an exposition of the characteristics of kingdom citizens. What are kingdom citizens like? And the Lord teaches right in the middle here, He teaches his disciples the important elements of prayer. And first, he teaches them to reverence and to worship God, our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, in other words, is your name. But his very next priority, before any personal preferences, before any personal requests, such as give us this day our daily bread, the very next priority, he admonishes us to pray kingdom prayers, to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven In other words, that may one day the obedience on earth be just as perfect as the obedience in heaven today. Why? Because the kingdom has come. And what will that be like? Very simply, Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Jesus Christ will be present. He will be ruling. We will have an essentially Christian society. Now, one of the shocking features, I think, about that phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done, On earth as it is in heaven, is that Jesus is asking us to pray for something that's already a foregone conclusion. It's 100% certain to happen. And so that's instructive to us that our prayers are not just for the things that we, from a human standpoint, view as somehow sort of a gamble, that maybe God will answer this prayer and maybe He won't. But our prayers are to be for those things that we know 100% are going to happen, including the coming kingdom. And as we've been examining the kingdom-focused, the, the future-focused nature of the last chapters of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 56, we've been really given very good instruction on how to pray these kingdom prayers, how to get beyond just praying for my own little kingdom and praying for Christ's kingdom. And we've talked about pray for the coming division of mankind, pray for repentance and mercy. Pray for the golden age of Israel. Pray for the king's agenda. Pray for the king's return. Pray for softened hearts. Pray for God's answers to prayer. And tonight, I think it's very instructive to us that Isaiah returns as his final message to Israel, his final message to humanity. He returns to the fact that mankind will be divided into two groups for all of eternity. Those who worship God and are blessed forever and those who rebel against God and are cursed forever And so tonight, we'll revisit the need to pray for the coming division of mankind. To pray for the coming division of mankind. Now, this may be my last chance for a while to urge you to pray kingdom prayers, to get out of the normal American evangelical mold of just praying about my own little needs. And so I want to take a little time to remind us why this is important. It's been my hope to convince you over the last seven previous messages to move your prayer life beyond being focused on circumstantial needs. To just take a break from that on occasion. To, to be focused not just on the ripples that emanate from the pond of your life, but to look far beyond that. And so let me remind you of three benefits to praying kingdom prayers. The first benefit is it, it matures your faith beyond the status quo. It matures your faith beyond the status quo. It breaks you out of the box of seeing prayer as merely a means to achieving a personal goal. It puts you, by the way, in the company of the majority of the church, which is now in heaven. And if you want to do the math, if we go century by century, 95% of the church of Jesus Christ is in heaven. And so it would be good to know what they're doing. What are they doing right now? They are praying kingdom prayers. Here is the kingdom prayer of the church in heaven as recorded in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What is that? That's worthy is the Lamb to receive his kingdom. And so even in heaven, the saints are crying out, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just a second benefit, kingdom prayers promote an evangelistic focus to prayer promote an evangelistic focus to prayer why is that? because the saved in this age will enter the kingdom in the next age very simple very simple equation there I think that ironically if we will pray for the future it really gives us a greater concern for the present spiritual condition of those around us one of the best ways to pray for the lost by the way is to pray for the church of Jesus Christ pray for our local church pray for every local church historically speaking The greatest moves of the Holy Spirit happen in the context of the church. It's not the knocking door-to-door movement. It's not the preaching on the street movement. Those things are great, and they're a wonderful supplement. That is not historically how God has moved. That is not how the great moves of the Spirit have happened. I did a little study this past week, and I wish I had time to go into it with you, on some of the greatest revivals since the Reformation. And they're always focused in the church that the church first gets on its knees and repents of apostasy and repents of bad doctrine and repents of disobedience. And all of a sudden, people begin coming to faith in Christ. If I can put it this way, as one author said, the prayer for revival is itself the revival. And so if you want to pray with an evangelistic focus in your prayer for the future, pray for the church now pray for people coming to faith through the preached word of God and in turn bringing the gospel to their circle of influence and bringing them to the church to hear the gospel. This is very simple. How does this work? You pray for the lost. You hear the gospel. You go out into the world and give the gospel and bring them to church. And then they do it. And they do it. And they do it. That's how the church has grown for 2,000 years. But there's a third benefit to praying kingdom prayers very simply, it gives you comfort that God will sovereignly work in your own life. It gives you comfort that God will sovereignly work in your own life. And the irony here is that praying for the big picture makes your little picture a little bit more palatable. That your little circumstances really are easier to understand. That if Jesus Christ can return as lightning goes from the east, from the west, if he can manage to somehow resurrect and rapture the church, give us brand new bodies, bring us back to the earth, conquer the entire world in a manner of moments, take over the world, I think he can probably handle your electric bill. And he can handle your depression. And he can handle your illness. And he can handle the things in life that seem so mysterious to you. And so praying for the, the kingdom... It just puts your own life in perspective And there's great comfort to that So why do we pray kingdom prayers It matures your faith beyond the status quo It promotes an evangelistic focus to prayer And it gives you comfort that God will sovereignly work In your own life Well tonight as we look at Isaiah 66 We are returning to the coming division of mankind That this is a focus of our prayer And the way I want to do this is It really is quite simple here isaiah 66 is a study in contrasts it is the contrast of the righteous and the wicked and it really reaches a fever pitch here at the end of the book and so let's just read nearly all of this chapter and we'll save a little bit at the end but let's read it just to begin to get our bearings because we're not going to go straight through verse by verse we're going to skip around a little bit isaiah 66 beginning in verse 1 thus says the lord Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pigs' blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight." Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. And before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river in the glory of the nations, like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal, and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses, and in chariots, and in litters, and on mules, and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And we'll stop there for the moment. So what is Isaiah doing here? He is doing what he's been doing all along. He's continuing to call his people to repentance, to remind them that they must have an individual faith in the Lord and that many in Israel will be rejected. Now, in the first two verses, God declares his sovereign right to do as he pleases. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And that's sort of the the context here, the setting of our first contrast. The first contrast to the righteous and the wicked we might call spiritual humility versus spiritual arrogance. Spiritual humility versus spiritual arrogance. And so he declares, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. And in the second half of verse 2, God explains who it is that he will favor the ones to whom salvation will be granted. And this is, of course, from the side of human responsibility. But he says in verse 2, This is the one to whom I will look, He who is humble and contrite in spirit. These are words that we understand, but let me just dig a little bit deeper for them. To be humble, the common use of that word in Hebrew is it means somebody without property, somebody who doesn't own anything, someone who's poor, who's needy, who has nothing to give. There's nothing to bring to the bartering table. And so the one that the Lord will look upon is the one who is humble, who has nothing to bring to God. And also, he will look on the one who is contrite in spirit. It's a word that means crippled or broken. Sometimes it's translated as wretches, a completely helpless and broken down person. This is the recognition that we have nothing whatsoever that God needs, that he wants, that he desires. You have no heavenly currency to spend. There's nothing you can spend in heaven. Nothing good you can do. And the idea here is to ask ourselves the question, is there anything I have that God could be excited about? And the answer is no. I have nothing that he could be excited about. What, what have you actually done for him? Well, nothing whatsoever. Nothing at all. And I think it's very instructive and very consistent in Scripture that Jesus explains the quality of a kingdom citizen in the Sermon on the Mount, and he opens with what we might call just a, a stunning blow To the religious elite of his day, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this word in Greek for poor, it it means beggarly, destitute. It's from a root that means one who cowers down, who cringes before God. And so what do we have to offer? Nothing but our cringing selves. That's it. There's only one way to approach God, and that is with a sense of your own worthlessness. It always bothers me to hear, particularly in Christian, contemporary Christian music and contemporary Christian thought, the idea somehow that God was pining for you because he was incomplete without you, I think that denigrates and lowers our all-sufficient God. He had no need for you. God was not crying tears in heaven because you weren't there yet. He wasn't saying that now heaven is complete, or as one song says, that Jesus didn't want heaven without you. That's heresy. God is all sufficient. And had he continued for all of eternity without creating anything, he would be perfectly content. The universe is somehow not going to be inadequate without you. In fact, because of your sin nature, could I say this? The universe would be better off without you. Better off. This and this alone is the attitude by which someone approaches God to ask for mercy. Mercy that is unearned, undeserved, unmerited. Now, by contrast to spiritual humility, the wicked possess spiritual arrogance. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God is saying, what house can you build for me? What palace can you give to me? I mean, he sits in the third heaven beyond our atmosphere, beyond the stars. He owns everything. He made everything. There's no big bang. There was no accident. He made it all. What are you going to give him? He owns everything. And so his question is, what are you going to do for me? Well, the arrogant have an answer. Their answer is, well, we'll do religious things. We'll do the things that you told us to do in your law because somehow you need that. And they would give a list. We'll sacrifice an ox. We'll sacrifice a lamb. We'll give grain offerings. We'll offer incense to you, God. Well, God gives a rebuttal because they're making a mockery of genuine repentance along with sacrifice And so he rebuts this idea in verse 3. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. So how does God view all these so-called religious works? It makes things even worse for them. I put it this way, it would have been better if they just stayed home. It's as if they murder a man, break the neck of the family dog, offer disgusting illegal pig's blood, and offer a blessing to an idol. Listen, unbelievers who dare to attempt some form of worship of God, they need to understand that God hates everything that they're doing. And I regularly issue a warning to our own church that if you're a member at Grace Bible Church and you are faking it, and maybe you know it and maybe you don't, you're making it worse. It'd be better if you stayed home, it would be better for you. God is furious with false religion. God warned Israel all the way back in chapter 1, beginning of verse 11 I've had enough of burnt offerings. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. In fact, he says in chapter 1, "Stop trampling in my courts. Stop polluting my holy place." God hates false religious actions, church attendance, membership, worship. He hates those by those who are frauds. Now, the contrast between spiritual humility and spiritual arrogance, it's hard for us to see because we're very deceptive human beings and we're good at faking. Jesus even said that there would be tares that grow up with the wheat in the church and we just wait till the end until the harvest and then the separation will happen. It might not be apparent to everyone on the surface. But as we go a little deeper, the differences begin to be harder to hide, harder to to hide behind. There's a second contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Now it becomes a little bit more apparent. Love of God's word versus hatred of God's word. The love of God's word versus hatred of God's word. The righteous who have humbly come with nothing to offer God, they have a quality. They love the word of God, and this is ultimately expressed in its final form in our scriptures. At the very end of verse 2, the one to whom the Lord will look, Isaiah says, trembles at my word. Verse 5, the saved and the forgiven are described as you who tremble at his word. Tremble, it means to be anxious about something. In other words, you, you take it seriously. You believe every word of the Bible. You're utterly convinced of its inspiration, its authority, its truthfulness. Now, when we talk about love for God's Word, this is not just a sentimental Christian bookstore, plaque on the wall, adoration about the Bible, affection for the Word of God. Lots of people say they have affection for the Word of God. What I'm talking about in loving the Word is those who are convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Word of the Lord is the singular source of information that we have concerning God, mankind, sin, judgment, and how we're going to escape the wrath of God. It's not just, it's not just, oh, the family Bible has been with us for generations. Don't we, don't we just love it and dust it off? And no, it's, it's we love and we cherish the Word of God. Because there is no other source of divine truth We tremble before his word because every word he's ever uttered has always come true So there's a trembling to that in fact The psalmist in psalm 119 verse 19. He says I am a sojourner on the earth Hide not your commandments from me In other words, god i'm gonna die really fast. I need to know what you require of me I need to know how to know you And so he begs for the word of god but how do the wicked feel about the word of God? Verse 4 I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. And how does He know they didn't listen? They did what was evil in my eyes and chose what, in wh- that in which I did not delight. The Bible tells us what God delights in He delights in faith, He delights in humility, He delights in all who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. They won't do it. They hate his word. They ignore his word. And ultimately, maybe not obviously, but as you get to know somebody, when you begin to see a disdain for the word of God, when you get, begin to see even an apathy about the word of God, you ought to be thinking to yourself, I wonder if I need to pray for the salvation of that person. Because, if, can I put it this way? There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't love the Bible. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. Here's a third contrast, and this one, this one is long. I can't shorten it because it, it tells its own story. Humiliation now and exaltation later versus exaltation now and humiliation later. One more time. Humiliation now and exaltation later versus exaltation now and humiliation later. Look with me at verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord you who tremble at his word your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake and we'll stop there for a moment. In the context of Isaiah encouraging future exiles who are going to return to Israel and we've said this before as we're going through Isaiah most of the Israelites will stay. They'll stay in what would become Persia. They'll say, "Hey, this is, you know, we're established here. I have a job, I have a house. I this is where my kids were born. I'm going to stay." Very few would actually return. And Isaiah warns them that there will be a day when the faithful Jews are separated by persecution from the unfaithful. And we see this most poignantly demonstrated after the birth of the Church of Jesus Christ at Pentecost. That the Church of Jerusalem, made up almost exclusively of Jews, was, was thriving. But tensions between Christian Jews and the apostate leadership of Israel finally reached a head when Stephen was arrested. He preached an excoriating sermon against the leaders of Israel for their murder of Jesus Christ. He was executed. He became the first Christian martyr. And now it was Jew against Jew. Acts 8 records, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. When it says they were scattered, it literally means they were running for their lives. There would be a separation your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake. But the qualification to be a follower of Christ is the willingness to endure whatever may come in humiliation for his name's sake. It might mean enduring vilification, abuse from your own family. Matthew 19:29 Jesus said, "Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit" eternal life just hours before he was arrested Jesus warned his disciples in John 16 beginning in verse 2 they will put you out of the synagogues indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God and they will do these things because they have not known the father nor me Earlier in the same week, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In Luke 21, it gets even more personal, beginning in verse 16, you will be delivered up even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Do you ever feel like sometimes that there's no safe place on earth for Christians? It's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. This is not our home. There is no safe place right now. The true believer in Jesus Christ ought, in fact, to expect trouble and persecution and humiliation. As a matter of fact, if I can put it this way, the way Paul put it to Timothy, this is indicative of a true believer. Did you know that Second Timothy three twelve? all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted You show me a christian who's living a life identical to his neighbors and i'll show you a christian who's not a christian We live a life That causes persecution This is why by the way we make the goal of biblical counseling not so much to solve the problem but to Suffer well in the midst of the problem. That's the goal of counseling But Jesus made the promise to his disciples also. He said right after the Luke 21 passage, in the very next verses, he said, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, we have to add a little context to that. He didn't mean that they won't die. All the apostles, but one die the martyr's death. It just simply means exaltation is coming later. Not a single hair of your head will will escape my notice and will not come into the kingdom, so, so to speak. This is what Peter promised in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, meaning your entire life, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Humiliation might be now, but exaltation will be later. And for the faithful Israelite, hope of a future exaltation was bound up in their hope for a restored nation. Hasn't happened yet. But we see the comfort and the assurance that that future exaltation is coming to the humiliated, those who are humiliated for the Lord. And this is given, this comfort is given in several pictures, beginning in verse 7. The first three are very similar, and then the last one is a little bit different. The first picture, God says that the restoration of Israel will be like a woman who suddenly gives birth. Verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth, and before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Now, I know mothers read that and say, how come my labor wasn't that way? How come my child didn't come without pain? Well, the idea here, is it's an exaggeration, that, that God's restoration is going to happen so fast, it's as if a mother gave birth before she even knew what was happening. Verse 8, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in liberty, he brought forth her children. Shall it bring to the point that not cause to bring forth What is that one day? Zechariah 14 speaks of that one day. In fact, it says that it will be a day unlike any other. And so the answer to that rhetorical question, shall a land be born in one day? The answer is Yes. It will. And boy, I just want to visit with my beloved covenant theologian friends on that day and say, welcome to Israel. I know, I know. But yes, in one day. There's a second picture. And it continues the mother and baby metaphor that Israel and Jerusalem will be given by God all that's needed to support the newly restored nation. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her. Now remember, Isaiah is speaking to people who saw Jerusalem destroyed. That their last vision of Jerusalem was that it was on fire. And it was being dismantled. And all of a sudden now, it's not that, like like after the exile, it's not that they're returning to rebuild Jerusalem Jerusalem has come back to rebuild them. Verse 11, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. And he gives this description of the abundance in Jerusalem. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you should be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. And Jerusalem will be providing as a mother does because in the future kingdom of Christ, the nations will bring their glory. They will bring the best of all that they possess as a tribute to God reigning on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Jerusalem will be the richest richest city on earth by, by a long shot. We've seen this so much in the last section of Isaiah that it's almost routine. I mean, by now, you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the restoration of Jerusalem, richest country on earth, nations bringing... Isaiah teaches us this over and over again so that we understand that God keeps his word. Jerusalem will be the spiritual center of the world. Then we get a third picture, and it's still continuing the mother and the baby metaphor. This time, Jerusalem isn't pictured as the, as the mother. In a very rare comparison in the Old Testament, God pictures himself as a mother. In verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Never forget that God invented fatherhood. He also invented motherhood because he is the original of both, of both roles. And then we get a fourth picture of the the future exaltation of the saved. And now it switches to a different picture. It's It's a picture of physical health and vitality. Verse 14, "...you shall see and your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like the grass." And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Now, it says here, your bones. This is a, a Hebrew phrase, a Hebrew idiom that means all that you are, your whole person, your body, your soul, your spirit, your emotions, everything, whatever makes up all of you will flourish. And what hope that is for us. I was talking to somebody this morning, and, and we were just talking about how it seems like every year something else on our bodies. G- goes wrong And the list just grows and grows And eventually you just say Okay I'm done fixing anything I'm just going to coast Right And some of you are saying Yep that's that's where I am We're just going to coast But your bones Everything that you are Shall flourish like the grass We experience humiliation now Certainly But exaltation is coming But for the wicked They are much more likely To experience exaltation now and humiliation later. This is why the evangelistic method of trying to appeal to the unhappiness of an unbeliever doesn't really work. There are lots of believers who are very happy. Well, I have more money than you. I have a better car than you. My house is bigger than you. I have a better job than you. Why shouldn't I be happy? That's not the issue. Christianity is not about becoming happier. Christianity is about changing from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so there may be a sense in which their exaltation is happening now. Look back at verse 5 again. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The wicked who hate the true believers, they're taunting the faithful. It's as if they're saying, if you consider your suffering for the sake of God is something joyful. Let's see, I I think there's a verse in the Bible about consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Hey, I want to see your joy. I want to see you suffer. And there's a sarcasm. There's a condescension. In this life, the unbeliever is often in the driver's seat, in the place of exaltation. Why else is it that some of the most wicked people in our nation sit in Congress? Why is it that... We're headed toward it being illegal to utter a negative word about homosexuality, which the Bible says is a one-way ticket to hell. Why else are Christians considered a cartoon? We're we're a caricature from some past era of moralism. Why else is Islam growing like wildfire? Because for the lost, for the wicked, for the rebellious, exaltation is happening now. But as we saw at the end of verse 5, we would say, let those who reject Christ beware. Because if they'll listen very, very closely, if they'll listen, they'll hear something coming. The, the roar of a freight train headed down the tracks, the whistle of a cruise missile headed for their camp. And here's the sound in verse 6. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. It's describing the sound of the battle for Jerusalem at the end of the Great Tribulation that it's going to be a horrific sound of God himself destroying his enemies. And the lesson is very, very simple. Exalt yourself now, and God will humiliate you later. That's the lesson. Now we're going to see really a stark, as stark a contrast as is spiritually possible. Now it becomes more obvious. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked in a contrast of baptisms contrast in the greek immersions all people on earth will be immersed by god in something but that something the difference is blatant and so our next contrast is baptism in the holy spirit versus baptism in fire baptism in the holy spirit versus baptism in fire now first the righteous are those who are baptized immersed in the spirit of god this is the singular key and the important feature of the new covenant the baptism of the Spirit is the indwelling of the Spirit in that moment in which we are, we are placed into membership with the covenant people of God. And we see some hints of this here in Isaiah 66, a time when the good news of salvation by faith will go forth to all the nations. Look at verse 18. And really, verse 18, I think, properly ought to begin at the word, the second and... And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and the chariots, litters on mules, dromedaries. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 21, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Now, this is a little bit of a confusing passage because there's a whole bunch of personal pronouns they and them, and they and them. And so, how do we unpack this? It also makes it fairly difficult to distinguish with certainty an exact time period that Isaiah is speaking of here. But we can make some observations that I think will help us begin to take it apart a little bit. Verse eighteen: "They shall come and see my glory." It seems best to understand "they" as the Gentile nations. Why is this? It's just a grammatical rule. The personal plural pronoun "they" has an antecedent. You go back to the to the uh, proper noun that's before it: all nations and tongues. And so we see here an age of the Gentile coming to faith in Christ. But then in verse 19, we have a different group. I will From them, I will send survivors to the nations. Survivors will go to all the nations, and some of these nations are listed. Tarshish, that would be Spain and the surrounding area. Pool and Lude that's the North African tribes mentioned in Ezekiel 27. They were as Isaiah mentions here, known for their skills with the bow and arrow. They would also be, probably the Egyptians would be included with them. Javan is an ancient name for Greece. Tubal and Meshech are mentioned in Ezekiel 32, 38, and 39. These would be the tribes living just south of the Black Sea, modern-day Turkey. Then the coastlands, that's just a Hebrew term that means everywhere else just to make sure that we get it. In other words, there's a worldwide spread of the gospel, but it's centralized and it begins to go outward like, like ripples. So what are these survivors doing? Well, they're proclaiming the gospel of Christ. They will declare my glory among the nations, and there is no greater manifestation of the glory of God than Christ himself. But the question is, who are these survivors? Why is this term used? Well, they certainly could be descendants of the survivors of exile. Why is that? Because just a couple of hundred years later, many of them will follow Christ. But it also could be survivors, saved Jews during the Great Tribulation, who are who are set apart and protected. They survive—that is—to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Revelation seven lists one hundred and forty-four thousand Jews who are sealed; they're protected. And what's the result of their ministry? What happens because of these 144,000? Here's the result. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the survivors, they, they, they're, they're Jews. It could be after the exile. It could be after the Great Tribulation or during the Great Tribulation, rather. But now we get another plural pronoun. Verse 20, they shall bring all your brothers, Jews, home to Jerusalem. Who is this they? Well, at the end of verse 19, the nations, Gentiles, returning the favor and helping Jews come home at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, after the Great Tribulation, if your head is spinning, join me—I mine is too. And in verse twenty-one, some of them, another pronoun whose antecedent now is Israelites in verse twenty, will be taken into the service of the Lord. So, which time period are we talking about? Who are we talking about here? Is it the Church Age now? Is it the Great Tribulation time? Is it the Millennial Kingdom? Well, I think like Isaiah does in many parts of his prophecy, it's very likely that he compresses multiple time periods into one event. But listen, to both church history and prophecy of the future fit exactly, it lines up beautifully with what Isaiah is saying here. Verse 19 pictures Jews going to the nations to declare the glory of God. Here's a Bible trivia question for you. What do all The Apostles, the first 3,000 members of the Church of Jesus Christ, and essentially the entire first generation of Christian missionaries, whether they all have in common, they're all Jews. The Church of Jesus Christ was built on Jewish believers, and they're the ones bringing the gospel to the nations. Verse 20, the nations are bringing Jews back home. We've already seen this in Isaiah multiple times. Isaiah 49 We see, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Isaiah 60, verse 4. Lift your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And so we've seen that also. So that would be likely at the end of the great tribulation, beginning of the millennial kingdom. And what's going to happen in this reconstituted Israel in which Gentiles are essentially returning the favor to the Jews by bringing them back home? Verse 23, From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Now, if you're an astute listener, you might know this, that I have completely changed topics. You might be wondering, what on earth is the connection to the baptism of the Spirit? all of this. One little phrase is our giveaway. In verse 23, all flesh shall come to worship me. Now that can't be said that that's happening today. All flesh, all mankind certainly does not worship God. But in the coming kingdom, the worship of God will be the norm. The exaltation of Christ will be the standard. Where else do we see a comment, very key comment about all flesh worshiping God? Joel 2, beginning in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, this was partially demonstrated at Pentecost. The Apostle Peter even quoted from Joel 2, but it was by no means a full fulfillment at all. There will be a day when Everyone you know possesses the Spirit of God. Can you imagine that? And sometimes I I, I walk through the grocery store, I'm in Target or Walmart or Vons or something, and you pass people in the aisle that you, you know, you're busy looking for ketchup and they just pass by you. And the thought always goes through my mind, I wonder if that person is going to be in the kingdom. Am I going to see them? And particularly if they have children, I've, I've grown into the habit of just praying for their children, praying for their salvation. But there won't be any wondering anymore. Every person you walk by in the grocery store or down the street will be one who has been brought in, immersed in the Spirit of God. That is the future of the righteous. For us, it's now and for all who will be saved in the future to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But for the wicked, their immersion will be different. Theirs is a baptism of fire. In verse 15, we saw this picture already. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. This is a description of the fate of the living rebels at the time of the return of Christ. In fact, Zechariah 14 says that this fiery judgment will be such that the flesh of God's enemies will melt off their bones so quickly that they'll still be standing while they're dead. And who is it that's headed in this direction? Like we saw last week, those who create self-styled pagan religious practices, doing things that are disgusting to God. Verse 17, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens. Those are the high places, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice. I mean, how did they get to that? They shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. And no one will escape, no one will hide, the beginning of verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts. Now, by the way, John the Baptist predicted this separation. He predicted that Jesus Christ would create this contrast in baptisms. And you probably have thought this verse already, Matthew three eleven. On the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. Pick one. The saved will receive the Holy Spirit. The lost will receive fire. Well, there's one more contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the end game, the result of the choices made in this very short, brief life that we have, and that is the contrast of going to heaven or going to hell. Going to heaven or going to hell. This is the ultimate division of mankind. This is when the wheat and the tares are now separated. A physical, eternal separation of the righteous and the wicked. Now, Isaiah has been speaking all over his prophecy of the the glorious future of the saved. In chapter 65, he introduced something marvelous, a new heavens and a new earth. That was a new thought. The book of Revelation adds to this a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Just so that we make sure we're all on the same page, when we talk about going to heaven, the bigger picture is this. Heaven as it is right now, sometimes called the intermediate heaven. This is what Jesus spoke of in John 14, my father's house. Ultimately, God will bring about the burning up and the refurbishing, the remaking, the recreating of, of creation and the new heavens and the new earth. And so the end game of heaven is a new earth. It's not a floaty, cloudy murky place. It's earth. It's a new earth. So when we say heaven, that's the ultimate end game. A pristine, sinful, sinless, rather, creation for all that God has saved to live in and to thrive and to worship and to fellowship. And so in the third to last verse in his whole prophecy, Isaiah gives a promise to Israel that she'll be a nation before him forever. She will never go away. And Israel, along with every believer from every nation, from every time in history, will dwell in what we might call the sign of his faithfulness, the very place that he'll make for us to live. Verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I, shall, that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. In other words, Israel will go away as soon as the new heavens and the new earth are destroyed. When's that going to happen? Never. Never. And so now, once again, as Isaiah does at times, he compresses two time periods. The very last verse of Isaiah gives us a picture of the end of the Great Tribulation when Jesus Christ has returned and has slain all of his enemies, and he pictures not only the immediate consequences for the rebellious, but he pictures the eternal consequences for them as well. Now, before we get to the last words of Isaiah... We're not only finishing this message, we're not only finishing this series, we are finishing the prophetic ministry of arguably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament other than Moses. And so I want to pause to kind of acknowledge that we're not just coming to the end of a book of the Bible, we're coming to the end of Isaiah's time on earth, the end of his ministry. Isaiah has been ministering to God's people, has been proclaiming the gospel of a coming Messiah, in such clear terms that when we read Isaiah, we almost think we're in the New Testament. He's been warning of coming judgment and giving hope of coming grace, and he's been doing this for some 60 years by the time he writes these words. And so the importance of the longevity of his ministry can't be underestimated. One Christian research organization estimates that the average tenure of the preaching pastor in the American evangelical church is about 3.7 or 3.8 years right now. And that's gone up. That's normal. And he cites reasons such as overly idealistic expectations by the congregation, overly idealistic expectations by the pastor. Members who are there when he arrives feel threatened by new members who love and trust the pastor more than they do. So any chance to criticize the pastor is now open game. He cites the honeymoon period being over for both the church and the pastor. He cites a pastor's family never really feeling like they belong in the same way that other members do. For one reason or another, generally speaking, pastors don't last. They don't have a long tenure in the ministry. But what about the pastors who beat those terrible statistics and they're faithful for many years? What about the pastors who are blessed to remain for 20 years, 30 years, even 40 years Well, as a matter of fact, local newspapers and magazines will very often write stories about pastors in long-term ministries. You can find these stories all over the Internet. I recently read of one pastor who celebrated his 50th year in one church and 68th year in ministry. I mean, 18 years just to warm up for the next 50. That's amazing. But it's very interesting what gets the attention of the media. And frankly, what gets the attention of American evangelicalism? What is it that, in the eyes of the world and of the nominal church, makes for a great, long lived pastoral ministry? What is it that says this guy is a great pastor? Well, here are some typical factors that make great pastors, according to the media. First, he's a community leader. He's a community leader, meaning not only does he pastor the church, but he also is the head of the Neighborhood Watch program. He serves on the board of a local social outreach program and occasionally takes part in protests against injustice. Another factor that says this is a great, long-lived, long-tenured pastor, he is a volunteer in numerous organizations. If I've read this once, I've read it a thousand times. He spends Saturdays at the local food bank. He drives a bus for the kids' field trips at the local elementary school. He pushes the Christmas time toy giveaway, and he's a part of all of these things. There's another factor that the media loves to highlight. He's always meeting with other community leaders. He's constantly in in meetings, and a community leader is what they like to call pastors. He's continually attending prayer breakfasts, city council meetings, social organizational functions. He's seen everywhere. As one church member praised her pastor, quote, He isn't one to sit around in his office and study. He's always out in the community. And they praised that. Still others praised the long-lived pastor because of his social calls. One church member praised her pastor because every day he spends hours visiting church members in person, saying that that is the key to a great church. And I won't deny that there's appeal to that. I'd love to spend time with you. I won't deny that that's a a happy time. For the long-lived pastoral ministry, often the praise is that he's learned how to encourage his congregation without offending them how to make them feel good and refreshed with his wisdom and kindness from the pulpit. Again, very, very appealing, very positive. Is that what Isaiah would say was the key to his 60-year ministry? Look with me back at verse 1. This is the sum and the substance of the calling of the prophet of God. And by the way, the sum and the substance of the calling of the minister of the gospel here in the church age, these are the words which are the greatest words any human being can ever speak. They're the most important words ever. When these words are spoken, nothing else matters. Verse 1, thus says the Lord. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord. Isaiah has spoken for the Lord in this fashion 34 times in this prophecy. And for the final time, Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord in his 60 years of proclaiming unashamedly the word of God. Do you remember what God said would be the outcome of his ministry? Was he going to have newspaper articles written about him? Was he going to be praised as a great community leader? God commissioned Isaiah to preach the truth to his people in chapter 6, so that their hearts would be dull, their ears deaf, and their eyes blind. In other words, he said, you preach faithfully and they're going to hate you for it. Isaiah was to preach to a people who would not listen. And so Isaiah, for his final time to say, thus says the Lord in his final words, his final phrases, the last gasp of his ministry. We cannot be rescued from what Isaiah says as his concluding parting message. Hear the last words of Isaiah, the great faithful prophet of God who would ultimately be murdered by King Manasseh. Verse 24: And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isaiah ends with two pictures: He ends with a cemetery. First of all, the dead bodies of the rebels and the pronouncement of their fate. And then he ends with a picture of hell. Whether the final words of Isaiah, the last contrast, the great division of mankind, verse 22, the faithful go to heaven. Verse 24, the rebels go to hell. Now, how do we know this is hell? Hell. Jesus quoted Isaiah 66, 24 in Mark chapter 9. He called this place where the worm does not die, meaning death continues on. It's a living death and the fire is not quenched. Jesus called that place hell. And so Isaiah ends his 60-year ministry faithfully proclaiming, thus says the Lord, to essentially an empty house. Isaiah ends on this note of warning The great Isaiah scholar, J. Alec Mottier, he says this. He says, There is a grandeur about Isaiah not found elsewhere, even the most majestic of the rest of Scripture, a majesty full of glory and of solemnity, plain alike in the revelation given to him and the language in which he was inspired to express it. Though with the grandeur went a stern resoluteness, that if the glory does not win us to the life of obedience, if the visions of a coming king, the sin-bearing servant, and the liberating anointed conqueror will not suffice, then maybe the unmistakably horrible rewards of disobedience will drive our wayward hearts to tremble at the word of the Lord. In other words, and Motier nails it, in other words, if after 66 chapters... After 65 chapters plus 23 verses, the glories of Christ won't bring you to the kingdom. Maybe the threat of hell will. Maybe the threat of hell will do that. And so we can't be rescued from how Isaiah chooses to end this passage. But thankfully, I'm not Isaiah. And I'd like to take the liberty to peek back at one more thing that gives hope and confidence. It just kind of slipped by us here. In verse 19, God promises that he will set a sign among the Gentiles. The Jews who are proclaiming the glory of God among the nations, there we, have, we see a coming together of Jew and Gentile under this sign, under one banner, under one flag, so to speak. What is the banner? What's the sign? What's the flag that unites all who would love the glory of God? Well, we get the answer all the way in Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul teaches of the mystery of of the unity between Jew and Gentile. How is this possible? And he calls this banner, which unites all who would love the glory of God, he calls it, quote, in Ephesians 3, 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the banner that unites us. The sign which unites all people who would humbly come to God by faith is very simply the cross of Christ by which... God has paid the sin debt we owed to him and by which we can be certain that when the great division of mankind finally occurs, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism by fire is completed, when heaven and hell are now separated by God himself, just as God separated the Israelites and the Egyptians by his own glory at the Red Sea, that at that moment we will find ourselves among those made righteous by Christ. And the contrast is encapsulated right at the very end. Verse 22, you can have new heavens and new earth. Or verse 24, you can have hell. Those are our options. Well, that is Isaiah. 74 messages in. You guys have been so faithful. Our Father, we thank you for this text. We have seen people come to faith in Christ through this book. We have seen your glory. We have seen the gospel according to a man who literally did not know the name of Jesus and yet spoke so eloquently of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who warned literally to his last breath of coming doom for the lost and of coming glory for the saved. And so, Lord, it's my prayer for all who have heard this message and heard the other previous messages that the book of Isaiah would never be the same for us again that as we open this book, we would see certainly the coming king, we would see the suffering servant, we would see the anointed conqueror. Our Lord and our God, your Son, Jesus Christ, is so clearly presented in this book, and may it impact our hearts such that we are never, ever able to be lesser Christians, that we are more like Christ because we have seen him so clearly. And Lord, for any hearing this message who may not be certain which side of the division they're on, may they be on the side of Christ, May they be on the side of receiving the Holy Spirit in salvation. May they be on the side of heaven. May they be on the side of those who would choose to follow Christ and be humiliated now in order to be exalted later. May they be on the side of the spiritual, spiritually humble. May they be the ones who are poor in spirit, and thereby receive the kingdom. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.